the photo of you and your driver's license may suddenly put you at risk of conviction, and you may never know it. Researchers at Georgetown University say that the picture of your face on your driver's license might be in a database of faces, and the FBI and ICE are using it to find suspects. So, if you own a driver's license, your photo is in this database for states that use face recognition systems and can be searched against for any reason. Nearly half of Americans are in a facial recognition database, and you could be one of them. Hi, I'm John. Joining this podcast for season two, we'll be talking about the privacy implications and the changing ways that technology is used for law enforcement. And I'm Yunyun, and you're listening to State of the Pod, where science meets society. FBI and ICE, ICE officials. The FBI and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement have been covertly using DMV photo files, wide sweeping photo databases, thousands upon tens of thousands upon millions of photos, to create an unofficial surveillance system without their consent for facial recognition searches. The use of facial recognition technology without those people's permission or understanding as an invasion of privacy, even as serious questions remain. So this secret program started at least eight years ago. Police departments throughout the country have been scanning millions of people's faces without a warrant to identify suspects. Now these people are in a police lineup. Except it's not people who are pointing to the suspect, but an algorithm. There are reasons why this new technology was so appealing to the government. They make investigations immensely fast and put a massive amount of information available to the government. But the tech also raises some serious questions, and that's what we're going to be looking into in this episode. We're going to get a police officer's perspective on modern technology like facial recognition systems, and then we're going to hear from a recent Cornell alum who's done research on the intersection between privacy law and technology. When we first started doing our research in the lineup, we discovered that at least 26 states currently allow law enforcement to search their driver's license databases. We wondered if our own local police department uses facial recognition, so we made our way to the Ithaca Police Department and had a conversation with the chief on how the department uses modern technology. So my name is Dennis Nayer. I'm the chief of police for the city of Ithaca Police Department. And Chief Nayer told us that police officers in Ithaca do not use facial recognition technology. Just it's not something that I'm currently looking at. I do know that there's um, constitutional issues involved, and I also do know that there's you know issues with the technology, and you'd have to show what need are you using it. And sometimes there might be a need for it in a specific investigation, but not in a wholesale approach. And no, it's just not anything that I've had an interest in trying to incorporate into our technologies. And facial recognition isn't the only technology the Ithaca police have not decided to use. While interest in using drones for law enforcement is increasing, drones are currently not used by the Ithaca police. Drone usage are, again, they're a tool that could be a lifesaver, especially if there's a, a volatile situation that allows to gain intelligence. It can also be good if there's a missing child or Uh, someone with um, Alzheimer's that is missing and wandered off and we're trying to find that person. I mean, there's a series of ways that a drone could be very valuable. But again, it's a technology that any agency has to make sure that how they use it is in keeping with their rules and regulations and constitutional laws. But we still wondered, how should police departments implement new technology? Chief Nair walked us through his department's process. So generally, in any piece of equipment, when we get it, first we look at it, we look at the need, we look at how it's a help, how it's a value to what we do. And we determine the mechanisms by which we use it consisting with our mission statement, um, legal standards, city policies. There's a lot of 
attorneys usually, and depending on what type of technology it is, making sure everything is in keeping with the law and the constitutional rights of people. And sometimes we take a what's called a model policy from the International Association of Chiefs of Police or um, some other large governing body that has templates of these type of policies that can be adjusted to the specific needs of an agency, and they're vetted and they're highly um, useful. So we see that there are multiple factors that shape the implementation of new technology by the police. There's city policy, legal norms, the constitution, and international police standards. This is a police department that seems to be carefully thinking about the limits of technology before they implement it. People in Ithaca also get to provide input into the shaping of policing practices through the Community Police Board. Experts have pointed out several problems with facial recognition systems. Facial recognition doesn't recognize people of different races and genders equally effectively. It's also been used disproportionately for petty crimes and deporting immigrants, not for the most serious crimes like murder and rape. It seems like this is an area that calls for tighter regulation. As further proof of how the technology may not be mature enough for conviction purposes, and the high level of subjectivity involved, there's even been a case where the actor Woody Harrelson's picture was directly copied and pasted to search against in a facial recognition database. Upon a witness describing the suspect of a petty crime as resembling the actor, New York City police officers ran the search using Harrelson's image and then actually arrested the match. Obviously, this is more of an extreme case. However, there has still been a history of improper use of the technology. But the problem we are interested in is whether the current policies surrounding police implementation of new technologies are sufficient. It seems like we need protocols that make sure police departments let people and experts have a say in how technology should be used before technology is implemented. So at this point, you may be wondering what legal protections you have against the use of these technologies, and if you're concerned that the rapid adoption of these new innovations are creating problems that the current legislation not yet recognize, let alone address, well, so are we. Because facial recognition technology is just one example of a dangerous expansion of the state's access to people. I watched when the World Trade Center came tumbling down. Especially since 9-11, surveillance has promised national security. It's essential that we understand the mentality of these killers. Terrorists like Al-Qaeda and ISIL are... But undermine people's right to privacy. We really need to know what they're saying. I want surveillance. Surveillance. Vital information. They help us prevent terrorist attacks. And we need to know what they're thinking. On the people coming in from Syria, if and we, we can't stop... we need to know what they're talking to. The Trojan horse, I want to know who the hell they are. While one can say the Fourth Amendment does limit searches and seizures without a warrant, it doesn't mean that it's absolutely clear on how the police's use of new technology like facial recognition, body cameras, drones, GPS data, and the internet should be limited. For instance, the Fourth Amendment likely does not limit warrantless drone use as long as the drone doesn't physically trespass and only captures what is visible from the public airspace. So the Fourth Amendment might not be enough because the technology is outpacing the law. For a deeper look at how technology can disrupt the law, we're going to hear from Ishan Javeri, a former Cornellian and a current fellow at Columbia University's Tao Center for Digital Journalism. As a senior at Cornell, Ishan wrote a thesis in computer science about how technological innovation disrupted the meaning of privacy. My name is Ishan, and I went to Cornell for an undergrad in computer science, and then I stayed on an extra year to do a master's of engineering. So can you tell us how you got interested in the topic? Yeah, so... 
when I was a sophomore, there was a shooting in a place called San Bernardino, California. Terror attack. 14 dead, 22 injured. In San Bernardino. The worst terrorist attack in the U.S. since 9-11. And the police killed the, the shooter, but they acquired his iPhone. We still have one of those killers' phones that we have not been able to open. It's encrypted and we have the key. And the FBI wanted uh, Apple to unlock the iPhone for them. A federal judge has ordered Apple to help the Bureau break into his phone. In order that they could, you know, kind of continue their investigation into his motives, etc. Try to find out what that terrorist was And doing. Apple said no, and then it became sort of this big publicized scandal where... Apple is angry with the judge's order. The company says it won't comply. People were kind of taking sides. Are you on the side of law enforcement? Are you on the side of privacy? And that was just interesting to me because I was studying computer science as a sophomore, and I was just thinking that the people who built this software that is at the center of this big discussion that's going on are people like me who are not necessarily being taught about these kinds of ethical issues that might arise from the technologies we're creating or just being taught how to create these technologies. And that's kind of how I became interested in the intersection of technology and privacy. So walk us through how he got started on the thesis. I wanted to write a thesis about how the internet affects privacy. But when I put this question to my advisor, Fred Schneider, he said, the dust hasn't quite settled with the internet. And we should think about how technologies that came before the internet affected privacy. So we can start thinking about how we we would even approach a question as broad as how does the internet affect privacy. So you looked at the camera, the telephone, and the GPS. Um, How did each of these change our notion of privacy? So with the camera, um, when I say camera, I really mean portable camera, which was developed by George Eastman of Eastman Kodak in 1885, I think. And it started getting really popular in the 1890s. And in response, two prominent legal scholars, Samuel Warren and Louis Brandeis, basically they wrote uh, this paper that said, with the proliferation of technologies like the camera, with the ability for the media to take photos of people and print this in publications, there is a need for a legal right to protect someone's right to be left alone. Um, In the 1890s, they talked more like they talk in England, so they called it the right to be let alone. But um, So this is why I thought the camera was really interesting. And then um, when researching the camera, we found um, cases like the the case of this girl called Abigail Roberson. She was a teenager in Rochester in um, in the 1890s and early 1900s. And she had her photo taken and she gave copies of her photo to her boyfriend who sold it to the company he worked for. And the company he worked for used it in an ad to promote flour, like cooking flour. Um, and she saw these ads like publicly where she lived on billboards. This is keep in mind a time before television, before newspapers really had um, photos. Some newspapers had photos, but most newspapers were still relying on illustrations. So having your picture be out in public like that was like a very, very different sensation than what it would be now. And she was distraught and she wanted to sue them. But essentially, after a bit of legal back and forth in a a few different courts, eventually she was not able to sue them because she didn't have um, a right of privacy to protect her from this particular kind of of trauma. And the legislature saw these cases and, and as a result passed the right of privacy. How about the GPS? So the GPS didn't necessarily create a new type of information. The whereabouts of where someone is, someone's geographic location was always plottable on a map. But what the GPS gave was the ability to track this in real time and record it um, over time and look at people's movement trends and things like that. So the GPS led to a spate of legislation around things that were 
legal before the GPS, like following someone, if you, if you followed someone in public, it was not illegal unless you could prove that they posed a credible harm to you. But there were many cases where law enforcement officers installed GPS devices in the car of like a drug dealer, or they sort of gave them an object that had a tracker on it. And this allowed the court to look at cases where the GPS was giving law enforcement information that you could technically have got publicly if you followed the person you were trying to follow 24-7. But because the technology gave you the ability to collect this information en masse, um, that's kind of when the law stepped in and gave you protections about what you could do with that information. So this really showcases this relationship between privacy law and the technology advancements, as well as the existing gap between them that we wanted to highlight in this episode. So this brings us to the central question of how exactly the meaning of privacy has changed over time. So Ishan, can you explain your approach in analyzing the privacy concerns of a technology and how it might be applied to facial recognition technology? So in order to do that, we need a definition for what privacy is. And that's, as you probably know, is easier said than done. And the way we decided to define privacy was we decided to define it as if we look at this set of technologies that have changed privacy law over time, we can say something about what privacy is. So for example, when the camera was invented, the ability to take photographs became something that existed that before that had never existed. And then if that changed privacy law, then surely there's something inherent to a picture of yourself being captured that invades your privacy. So that's kind of the, does that make sense? Yeah, so when a new technology is introduced and it makes people capable of producing a new kind of information, like how the camera let people take pictures anywhere, that is something that triggered legal questions. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So the assumption we made is if in a world where there's no camera, there's no way of, of taking a picture of someone. But now when there's a camera, you can take a picture of someone. And if the fact that you can take a picture of someone causes the Supreme Court or the legislature or any kind of legal body or even just like legal scholars, not necessarily the law, to say, oh, now we need to pass a law because this thing exists, this photograph exists that couldn't exist before. The assumption that we made was that the existence of this technology now has uncovered some kind of thing that we need a legal protection over, and this is what we're going to call privacy. So circling back to facial recognition technology, a picture of you isn't just a picture. It's now a face print that can be searched against another face in a database. No one could have possibly imagined this when they first stopped behind the camera to take their driver's license picture. So generally speaking, what's one privacy concern that you have as a consumer? Um, so I think one sort of privacy concern I have as a consumer comes a lot from the work of this guy called Arvind Narayanan at Princeton. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he has done a lot of work on the data that browser extensions uh, and browsers in general capture. So for example, you might visit like five different retail websites and then you might also visit Amazon. And there's a decent chance that a large subset of these websites that you visit use the same web tracking. So it sort of removes your anonymity um, from your browsing experience. And then it collects all of this data and it also has all sorts of crazy ways of being able to uniquely identify you. There's a, there's a bunch of ways that these web trackers basically determine it that it's the same person on two different websites. And then as soon as they know, as soon as they're able to uniquely identify you as an entity on the internet, they can start looking at all of the different 
websites you use as long as those websites contract their services, which many websites do. And then they collect all of this data and they have very detailed data about your browsing habits and they sell that data to someone else and they sort of are part of the data brokerage industry. And um, if someone who knows my browsing history sells that data to a data brokerage exchange and then someone on that data brokerage exchange is, is someone who I eventually apply for a loan to and they can see all my browsing history and they decide not to give me a loan based on like, you know, some arbitrary website I visited, something like that. I think that's kind of a concern I have as a consumer, um, which is not always super obvious when you're browsing on the internet. This also reminds me of the privacy uproar when news of Google's recent acquisition of Fitbit broke out. There's all these stories about people tossing on their Fitbits or requesting the company to delete all their account data. People are upset because there's something deeply unsettling about any one, let alone one of the largest and most profitable companies in the world, to have that much data on you. Google controls over 60% of the world's internet advertising revenue. And it's the most competitive because it has the largest database of user data. Everything you do on the internet, if you're using a Google-based feature, whether it's a search engine or an Android device, leaves behind a trail of personal data that can be sold for profit. Does your background as a computer scientist make you rethink how new technologies are used by the police? I would say there was, I think, the era of technologists being able to just sort of brazenly create technology just because we can and then not have to worry about the consequences. I think that era should be sort of behind us um, because I think there's countless examples, Cambridge Analytica being the, the shining example that everyone returns to of the issues when tech companies sort of wash their hands of the responsibility that they hold, that their tools have towards society. I think this is already happening a little bit, but as much as I can, I would say my academic research and my interests inform me to have the opinion that technologists should start taking, should consider themselves active stakeholders in how their technologies are used rather than just building their technologies. And they should consider themselves responsible if their technologies are used for ill. Some of the Democratic candidates are talking about this, about bringing in legal provisions to make technologists responsible for the technologies they create. So I would say that's something I'm in favor of. We heard how law enforcement has used new technology in ways that trigger concerns about privacy. We also heard how it's a continuation of a pattern of technology disrupting legal norms surrounding privacy. And our concerns around privacy seems to be very different from when the Founding Fathers wrote the Bill of Rights in 1791, and even hundreds of years later when the camera was first invented. But in some ways, the worry has remained the same. The promise and peril of technological innovation is that it's made our bodies and our lives more accessible to others than ever before. The way we regulate information or even conceptualize information has had to change dramatically along with these developments. But one thing is certain, adequate protection of privacy is essential for democracy. The tasks that we are facing aren't simple, but they're becoming more pressing every day. Because in the end, we can all be in a perpetual lineup. Perpetual lineup.